this special episode of the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast, writer and broadcaster Nicholas Rankin talks about the influence Burgess had on his work. Nicholas Rankin worked for the BBC World Service for 20 years and has written books on subjects such as Robert Louis Stevenson, the war correspondent George Steer, and 30 Assault Unit, the wartime inspiration for Ian Fleming's James Bond. His most recent book is Defending the Rock, How Gibraltar Defeated Hitler. He's currently working on a book about his childhood in Kenya. Nicholas was kind enough to share a Burgess-inspired short story with us that he wrote in 1981. After this reading, he stayed on to tell us what Burgess means to him in his writing. The day that Franco died, 20th of November 1975, I was a rather wild and restless young man living in the Catalan capital, Barcelona, and teaching English as a foreign language. I had a degree in English and still read a lot. At that time, I really liked the word boys, James Joyce, Dylan Thomas, and in particular, Anthony Burgess, whose work I'd loved since my first day at university when I picked up a copy of nothing like the sun. When I began writing myself, age 30, I put something of those Barcelona days into a short story, which was first published almost 40 years ago in November 1981 in a good but now defunct literary paper called Quarter. 45 years on from the death of the Caudillo, Generalissimo Franco, I think the story perhaps merits another peep at the light of day. The Rightist, by Nicholas Rankin. Right, shut your books now, class. Good, what's this? The sun. These? Stars. And, gentlemen, what is this? The moon. Very good. Now, what is the effect of the moon? Miguel, what effect does the moon have on the seas? It makes, uh, how you say, mareas. Tides, T-I-D-E-S, up, down, in, out. Flux, gentlemen, el flujo. A proverb for you. Time and tide wait for no man. Write it in your books. Time and tide wait for no man. Good. Of course, in Anglo-Saxon, tide means time, but that's something else. Uh, Easter tide, good tidings, and so on. Right. Now, Bearing in mind the moon's influence on the seas, about 70% of our planet's surface, gentlemen, answer me this question. What elementary substance makes up 69% of the human body? Calcium. No. Bone? No, not bone. B-O-N-E. Skull and crossbones. See? No, not right. Mm, Water. Yes, Alberto. Water, H2O. And if the body is nearly all water, how can it not be affected by the moon? We all know the word lunatic, lunatico. This is no mere superstition. Many surgeons will not operate under the full moon. Why? Because they cannot control the flow of blood. And what is the word? 
the English word for an uncontrolled flow of blood. Hemorrhagia. Good. Hemorrhage. And what is the caudillo's main medical problem? Hemorrhagia. Good. And what is the state of the moon, gentlemen? Have you seen recently? Getting big? Yes, Alberto. Waxing, we say in English. Waxing, waning, ebb, flow. Look, the moon is growing and it is taking the blood of Franco. How many meters of transfusion has he had? 30? 40? Barkis went out with the tide and so will he. What is Barkis? Uh, never mind, later, literature. Charles Dickens, David Copperfield. What I'm saying is, is that it is the moon at work. And do you know what is going to happen tonight? It is very significant. There will be a total eclipse of the moon over all Spain. It is an augury, un presagio, see? The first night of darkness, of occultation, is at 9.39 tonight. The shadow passes completely at 23 minutes past two on Wednesday morning. As above, so below. That will be the end, I believe. The eclipse, you see, will hold back the hemorrhages and contain them for a very important time. Franco will not die tonight. He cannot. We all know he must die tomorrow. Vox Populi Dixit. Look at the blackboard. Now, you add the date of the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, 18th of July, 1936, writing it 18736. You add it to the date of the end of the Spanish Civil War, 1st of April, 1939, 1-4-39. You add the columns up, 18 and 1 is 19, 7 and 4 is 11, 36 and 39 is 75, and it all adds up to tomorrow, 19 11, 75 the 19th of November, 1975. Bingo! But do not forget the moon, gentlemen. It is the feminine principle. I wonder... But there is the bell. Fine. Right. I shall see you all next week, then, to confirm my prophecies. Do not forget your homework. Adam? Yes, Raoul? You good teacher, but little crazy sometimes. Thank you, Raoul. See you next week. Not mad yet, by God, but maybe on the way. He slammed and shuffled books, cleaned the board in long-distance waves. Fornicating language school. It was a sort of brothel, really, paying by the hour for tongue twisters. Get your laughing gear around that. Five pesetas per sheet of homework, too. Maybe big crazy always vending oral gratification and a handwriting job. Good night. Good night. Good night. Crisp air dried the grin on his face. Yellow lamplight gleamed on the bare trees of Rambla de Catalunya. He breathed deeply. The night is young. He felt alert and elated, as though the three hours teaching had been a stimulant. Blood tingled in his fingers. Turning the corner, he almost collided with a black-bearded man in dark glasses who recoiled. Adam grabbed his hand and shook it. Joe, how are you? What's happening? Joe looked around, Rasputin in shades. Pretty heavy, man. As always, man, off the glasses and it'd be lighter, right? That was a joke, Joe. 
Incidentally, what's the latest Franco joke you've heard? You know why they put Coca-Cola in his plasma, don't you? Because it's like the ads say, it's the real thing. Yeah, I heard that already. You know what the crucifix over Franco's bed is like? Joe posed dramatically by a shop window, arms outstretched, beard and long hair, the man of sorrows. It was striking. Fastidiously, Joe's pale right hand plucked itself from the invisible crossbar. Finger and thumb pinched his nostrils and he wrinkled his face in disgust. Adam burst out laughing, then coughing. Apoplexy. Leaning against a car, he hawked and spat noisily. The mucus gleamed like a coin in the lamplight. An omen, he panted. Let us go and drink to it. Right, said Adam, as they pushed their way into the smoky bar. He rubbed his hands enthusiastically. What are you having, then? The bouncing simulacrum of bonhomie that was part of his teaching persona. He swigged at the brandy, cough mixture and firewater, and puffed a brave Habano. Joe pointed at his buttonhole. What's that? That, my friend, is a poppy. Opium freak, huh? It does not commemorate the religion of the masses, but those attempts at their extermination. I refer to the Great War, though it stands as well for the dead in all the others. He cleared his throat. The money goes to the maimed, limbless and so on. War is evil, man. Well, I might quibble there, but never mind. Remembrance is a token. It's victors and vanquished, really. Sort of last knees up at Nuremberg. You look after your own, so it's tobacco in his chops for the Franco boys and no pensions for the other lot. Where'd you get it, man? British Embassy. When Britain first at heaven's command. Funny lot. Strange people you meet there. Costa Brava nightmare shock horror. And then they get buried in the wrong cemetery. Consulate of death is something or other. Hey, man. Yes, Joe? What are you talking about? Oh, well, never mind. Let's have another. Sure. Joe pushed the bellied glasses across the wet marble and made a significant peace sign to the grey-faced man sloshing in the sink. The barman nodded and cigar ash fell into the water. Squinting against the smoke, he tremblingly he poured two more brandies, well over the plimsoll line. There you go, man. Look, with all this British bullshit, what are you doing here, like in Franco, Spain? Teach the Dagos the tongue that Shakespeare spake, my good man. Oh, yeah? Yeah, well, it's more of an excuse, really. But look at England. Wonderful place. Won't hear a word against, but I don't fit somehow. Odiet ammo and all that. Can't belong. Always wanted something more. Something. So you're on the lamb, man. What? Oh, yes. American idiom. Flight. I thought you meant the paschal lamb. Sacrifice. The bleating bard. Dragos tragedy is a goat, you know. Un trago here is a drink. It all fits together. Let's have another. Yeah, sure. But why Spain, man? Oh, Christ, I don't know. The gorge also rises, my earnest heliotrope. People came to fight, you know. Must mean something. Maybe it was that. Not just wine and sun and senoritas and boots of Spanish leather. I mean, lots of things pull you. It's not lambing, 
But Lemming, hey, that's good. Gracias. Cheers. Bullshit, Adam. You're just a romantic. You'll grow out of it. Hang on. That's not fair. This is history. And then there's the language. I want to be part of it all. Really in there. It's all in your mind, man, said Joe. They had two more. Several bracing braces in various bars. And two for the work. Adam kicked at a dustbin and missed. They walked on. A garbage truck banged and rumbled in the next street. The metal arm of its compactor screeched like a distant dinosaur. Well, said Joe, Franco comes out of his room in El Pardo Palace and sees Prince Juan Carlos in the corridor leading a goat. Where are you going with that donkey, he asks. We can out. That is not a donkey. It's a goat. Shut up. I wasn't talking to you. Hey, look at that. Adam looked, coughing. There were two shadowy figures on the other side of the street. One was gesticulating slowly with a metallic object gleaming in his hand. There was a sinister hissing noise. He's writing on the wall, said Adam loudly. Joe peered and read, slowly, like a beginner. Rojos, ir os a Rusia que en vuestra patria. Hey, that's really neat. Reds, go to Russia. One of the figures started across the road towards them. He was wearing a leather jacket and carried an iron bar. Their footsteps rang on the pavement as they ran. Which is your country? Homeland, wheezed Adam. Mother coughing fatherland. Adam was still gasping four blocks away when the Policia Armada grey Land Rover with wide grilled windows rolled to a halt. Que pasa? growled a voice. Nothing, mother, said Joe in American-accented Spanish. Mi amigo tiene tos muy mal. My friend has a cough very bad. Good evening, constable, said Adam, swaying, swallowing breath. Que dice? It's nothing. He's a little, Joe indicated, thumb jerking twice towards mouth, Latin shorthand for inebriation. My American colleague and I are astronomers. We are observing an eclipse. Take him home. The Land Rover moved off. Home, Christ, Master, Ale? Adam spat, wiped. The heart's fire's hearth fire. Oh, he began to sob quietly with his eyes closed. Iron soft sift. He sniffed loudly. Right, he said. Where to now? Gold slurring key, chain fumbling silver. Strong smell of cats. Flickering blue light silhouetted his landlady, Senora Munoz, against the TV screen, erect among the pot plants. Trumpets, national antheming the close down of programmes. Her right arm up, in the phalangist salute. The night was bunker black. Light switch, a grenade. Blink at the desolation of his room, rubble of books and papers, crumpled clothes, a holocaust of ashtrays. Right, he said, and fell heavily onto the unmade bed.
pain. Pain. A dry palated champy. That arid square. His head bonged, gong tormented. That fragment. Chaff roared in our old vaults. Nipped off from hot Africa. He drank thirstily, gratefully, from the kitchen tap. Time the refreshing river. He splashed face, neck, drank again, soldered so crudely to inventive Europe. Right. There was a feathery drum roll of pigeons as a shopkeeper cranked his clanking scroll of roller blind up. A duster fluffed at the day's papers. Situacion critica. Gravissimo. Not yet. The blind man with lottery tickets wailed his secular moesin. Still here, a vespa snarled smoking over the cobbles. Adam sipped his coffee. A man in a brown suit was haranguing the barman, his polished shoe up on the footrail. Respect, he shouted. That is what they don't have. Respect and of honour. His wrinkled lip revealed a gold canine. Nothing. Adam saw that the man was drinking brandy and winced. His first student of the day, Senor Jama Puch Castells, had a low hairline and resembled a very bright monkey. But he was the president of a bank, and in a city where it is popularly believed that there are more bank branches than restaurants, he was to be respected. Weeks before, he and Adam had given up any pretense of real instruction. They spoke in Spanish, their lingua franca, and now and then contented themselves by guessing their way through articles from the Financial Times and those chapters from a simple book of economics that concerned the English banking system. Senor Jama Puch Castells expressed great admiration for the English banking system. He was also keen to make a pilgrimage to the golf course at St Andrews. The grandson of a Scot sat by a Catalan at his broad leather-topped desk. Both smoked furiously in these sessions, like conspirators. Spain, said Senor Puch, does not exist. It never has existed. It is neither one, nor great, nor free. Iberia makes some sense geographically, but Spain is an artificial unit. The Castilians are rubbish. Loud, boastful, pretentious, and empty. Madrid is not a real capital. It is an imposition, as the idea of Spain is an imposition on the different peoples and languages of this peninsula. The week before, Senor Puch had been much taken by Lord Acton's adage that all power corrupted and absolute power corrupted absolutely. Adam quietly reminded him of it. Yes, I know, said Senor Puch pushing back his chair and walking to the window. Look at that. He pointed into the pale sunlight. Castle of Montjuic. My father was in there for three years after the war. When he came out, he was a broken man. He had been a lawyer, then a judge. He could never exercise his profession again. Up there, they used to take people out every day. They were shot against a wall. Senor Pooch sat down again. Luis Compañes was amongst them. Adam saw there were tears in his eyes, for his father, or the Republican president, he did not know. He suddenly felt a great love for this monkey-faced banker. 
Right, he said. Let's look at building societies, shall we? Later, Senor Jaume Puch Castell said quite calmly, For my part, I am content to see Franco die like this. He deserves a long agony. When he is dead, we shall forget him completely. For his part, Adam on the number 16 uptown bus an hour later, the long agony was a ritual and dramatic necessity. Everybody was prepared, ready. Ready for what? Calvary? Catharsis? Curtain up? It was all part of the plan, the plot. He stared out the window at Plaza Catalunya in bright November sunshine. Pigeons, fountains, busy shoppers at El Corte Inglés, peace and prosperity. Pay electricity bills in that corner, phone bills in the other. There would be no uprising like before. Adam rang the bell. The evening edition of Teleexpress rolled up tight in his hand, like a weapon. A door opened somewhere in the rambling apartment, unleashing sympathy for the devil. Hi, babe, he said breezily, in the false confidence of one ready to ward off a blow. He's not dead yet. Seems immortal. They've got him on ice, even. The prophecy's all wrong. The eclipse was a mistake. Mercedes was standing in the tall doorway of the sitting room, a cigarette clenched between her teeth. She made a mocking gesture and turned her back on him. She wondered if he would manage to get into her bed tonight and if politic tears would help him again. She was stretched languorously on the sofa and the lamplight shone on the waiting chess pieces. Your move, she said. He made to kiss her. No, she said, and turned away cold. He sat down and moved Knight to QB2. She sat on his knee and kissed him deeply. He lost a bishop, a knight, both rooks, four pawns and his queen. He was rubbing his cheek from her slap when they went out to dinner. Draining his Rioja, he drew the sheet of paper out from his jacket and passed it across the table. He'd been working quixotically on a translation of Dylan Thomas's Alter Wise by Alwide. He'd been having, understandably, difficulties. Mercedes worked quickly and ruthlessly with his marking pen, a cartoon of slashes on his time-traced creation. He ranted, but grudgingly accepted. She abused, but cunningly suggested. They were having a lovely time. Look, he said, don't you see? The gentleman lay graveward with his furies. El caballero entumbado con sus furias. There's no such verb as entumbar. I know, I know, all right, just tumbado or tumbándose. I mean, tumbar can mean screw, tumble, which is a lay. Tumbarse is to lie down. La tumba is the grave or tomb. Yes, not a drum was heard. Tomb, tomb. Say tumbo would be better. Yes, yes, yes. He reached for Salvation's bottle. He might have difficulty in leaving the restaurant. His rude red tree ached for her nest of mercies. He did not have to cry that night. Bagpipe-breasted ladies blew no blood gauze through the wound of man-wax. He lay back on the pillows, stunned by a scalding clarity. Her head lay smooth on his chest. As he fell asleep, he remembered himself on the ferry's cold poop a long time ago, Dover's grey cliffs. The seagulls, shrieking for gash, seemed to be laughing in his wake.
She was standing over him. I check at noi, is mort. A gentle shake. Get up, boy. He's dead. It's on the radio. Funeral Saturday, coronation Sunday. Schools and private institutes are closed for a week, so I have to go to work, but you don't. In the street, the same trees were still there. A green truck, La Vanguardia painted on its side, crawled round the corner. A burly man in a cap tipped two fat-wrapped stacks onto the pavement. The swaddled newsprint was still rolling when the kiosk man scooped it. There it is, said Adam, a straddle of bar stool, smoothing out the papers in front of him. The black fronts. Francisco Franco ha muerto. Of course, it's logical he would die the same day as José Antonio. 4.32 in the morning. At last, he raised his glass of coffee and brandy. Cheers, he said. Salud, said Oswaldo, raising his. Okay, Adam. So Franco gets to heaven. St. Peter lets him in at the gate, and the first person he sees is the Admiral Carrero Blanco. You remember Carrero, don't you? Etta blew him up in his limousine, right into the next street. So Carrero says, Hola, Paco, por qué tardaste tanto? Hello, Paco, what took you so long? Franco looks at him. Hombre, subiste en coche. Hombre, you went by car. At ten o'clock, they were still in the bar. No classes may be held outside the school premises. The week's morning was not going to be taken lying down. On with classes, wrap yours. They were drinking brandy coffee. The TV was on, awaiting the Prime Minister. Españoles. Adam watched Arias Navarro. How like a mouse he looks. He observed the trembling drink of water, appreciated the crackle of the paper that he drew from his pocket. Franco's last will and testament. The bar was still. Its occupants stared open-mouthed at the screen. The words washed over him as proof as a duck. Sobs, anguish, orphanhood, pain, sadness. He imagined his landlady, Mrs. Munoz, going through it all, arm up. He peered into his glass, stirred up some sugar. He begged forgiveness from all and forgave them too. Rally round the king. Do not forget that the enemies of Spain and Christian civilization are alert. Hold it all together. Viva España! There were no vivas in the bar. Two more brandy coffees, please, Oswaldo said. You won't be able to buy a bottle of champagne anywhere in Barcelona today. All sold out. Cheers, said Adam. He was carrying seven different editions of various newspapers. A Spanish flag hung from Mrs. Munoz's balcony, black ribbons pinned to the yellow stripe. She sat clutching a handkerchief, transfixed by the procession of faces before the televised casket. He was ready with a pat or two, but the ferocity of her grief embarrassed him. He crept out like a cat. In his room, drawer rummaging, he looked at the stanza pinned under a poster. Demos tiempo al tiempo, it began. Let's give time some time. And now, demos tiempo al demos. Feast the folk in the fullness of. He crammed green notes into his trouser pocket, ready for a night out with his girl. A la juerga! 
Hallelujah. Three hours later, Mercedes kissed him, slipped inside her street door and locked it, leaving him outside. Banging weakly on Arne Grill with fist, Mercedes, he wailed. He pressed his face to the clear glass. It was cool on his hair-plastered brow. Street lamp light gilded her through the bars. She shook her head, wryly, heartachingly. Then she winked. He waved, ship departing, steamed up porthole. Right, he said. Slovenly feet carried corpuscular Adam to the aorta of the city. Grey patrol land rovers and a solemn excitement in the street. Adam zigzagged down the one-time storm drain. Bar with oval mirrors in a wood-panelled wall. Wrought iron tables, blurred beer on the marble top. By the wax museum, a sudden smell of sea from the oily port. A border la merde. In the hiss of streetlight, Sahara screamed a headline. The Moroccans were marching on the Spanish Sahara. Staggering man saw a prince of men in desert battle dress. Whirled in the sand, the triangle landscape, tideless save for the history of men. Half-stomped bottle whose nightmare message is always writ in water. Moonshine minded by midday, Kubla Carlos heard an ancestral voice. Ozymandias is dead. King and queen, audio received the mighty mariner, old cock from nowheres and the heaven's egg in the black palace. Time's joker, racks of poetry and a skull's sargasso, stood outside a circle of high-handed dancers thrusting a state up from the street. State. He stared up at the statue at the bottom of the rambler. Christopher Columbus, Burgess bulky, bones well buttoned and chained with gold, pointed out to sea. He stood pointing, smug as stone, the wrong way, out and over the dummy bay, the dead drunk sea, to the hippo sands of disastered Carthage. Pigeon wobbled, burbling along the tightrope bottom step. Columbus was a dove from the Spanish R. High, dry and mighty on towering Ararat, a dirty white, shite-gobbling pigeon with no nest of mercies, nowhere to go, the stagnant sea locked in by land, locked out by her. Our mother, which art the sea, seeded with sewage, pus pregnant. He shook like a dog, gulping queasy air. The shore of Middle-earth, the bowel of civilization. Night swooped like a witch of cardboard. Mercedes! Pigeons scattered. Tibby double. He was sick. The propellers of a huge vessel were churning. He seemed to swim in the phosphorescent wake. The point of the finger, an evil index. Go, 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 said the bird. Wail on, moon. Wail on. Okay, thank, thanks, Nick, for, for reading your story. Uh, I think the keen listeners will, will be able to see the, the, the influence of Burgess on your writing there. It's also got his name in because Christopher Columbus is described as Burgess Bulky. I actually got his name into the story.
I mean, to me, anybody who knows their Burgess will, will recognise uh, that kind of writing. There's a, a line like um, a clanking... I can't remember the line about clanking and cranking the scroll of roller blind. I mean, it's pure... The sonic effect that Burgess is writing, It's you've got to read it aloud. The sound of the sentences mirrors you know, what you are describing. And somehow there is a sensual aspect to the writing. It's not merely communication of, of simple information. I know exactly when it was. It was my first day at university. I walked out of my college and I went to Blackwell's bookshop in the Broad in Oxford. And on one of the desks there, they had a pile of Nothing Like the Sun, a novel of Shakespeare's love life. And it had a sort of photograph of a man and a sort of, with a sort of brown woman, that penguin paperback. And I opened the first page of this book, and it's describing young William Shakespeare standing on Clopton Bridge. And he looks down into the water, and he sees a back eddy. And Burgess describes this. He says that he sees the back eddy spurgeoning. I thought, hang on. I like this man, because that back eddy was first noticed by Caroline Spurgeon in her book Shakespeare's Imagery, and he's nodded. He said, okay, if you people know your Spurgeon, I've read that book too. And that kind of signal, I liked that. I love the way he wrote it, and I adore that book. I think it's a, I think it's a marvellous novel. It's incredibly well visualised, and he knows his Shakespeare. He wrote it for the, the uh, Tercentenary, wherever it was, in 1964. Uh, and he's really good on Shakespeare. And I, I love the book. William Boyd loves the book too. We talked about it when I made a radio program about uh, Anthony Burgess. So that was my first love. And then I went on from then, while I was a, a, a student, to, to read all of Burgess. And I carried on reading him uh, through my 20s. And uh, it became, you know, it became an enormous love. Here was, to me, a, a really important writer. And I, and I think also in my finals, as I recall, I think I cribbed some, um, one of the essays I wrote, half the information came out of, uh, you know, one of Burgess's essays somewhere. So he was a sort of teacher to me, as well as a, as a kind of model. He was the, he was a writer who, I think he spoke to a lot of my generation or post-war generation, the, uh, uh, people like William Boyd, he's a couple of years younger than me, but people like that and Amos and all sorts of people of that age group, the post-war baby boom children, we all read Burgess in some way or another. And and I, th I think uh, the authors that you've mentioned, you, you can really see the influence of Burgess, specifically William Boyd, you know, in something like Any Human Heart, you know, that in, in many ways that seems to be a, uh, an attempt to rewrite earthly powers in a in a different context. Yes, and yes, yeah, indeed. And I mean, William uh, and I were at Anthony Burgess's uh, memorial service in the Actors' Church, um, and there was a marvelous moment in that um, when the widow didn't like it, but the service was going on, and suddenly some musician started playing 
It sounded like a tuba, a farting tuba outside the window. There was this solemn moment, and then there was this comic sound, and I thought, that is pure Burgess. You know, if there's a divine movement up there, because he's deeply serious, as he, as he, as he said himself, you know, he thought of himself as very serious and earnest, but discovered he was a comic writer. And that was his great quality. He had this intellectual seriousness, but yet the ability to clown, the ability to... You know, the Enderby books, which are just marvellous, the Enderby trilogy, because they're comic and serious at the same time. Yeah, the, I mean, that's one of the things that, that I notice about, about Burgess, particularly in the, in the 70s. He was writing books that, that had this sort of emotional depth to them, uh, something like, like Beards, Roman Women, which are, essentially can be seen as a throwaway novel it took him three months to write and it's very short but it has this this depth of experience in it yes i mean it's also it's a haunting it's a haunting by his first wife i mean you know the more of the biography that you sort of know about you realize where some of these things come from i remember getting a first edition of that book it must have been 80 what would it have been no 70 77 78 and it had photos in it too, didn't it? That first edition. You know, it gave a different attitude. He didn't just do writing. He liked to do, um, you know, he did television, he did film adaptation, he worked in opera. I remember listening to um, uh, Blooms of Dublin on Radio 3 in Suffolk, hearing this first broadcast of, of his, you know, turning Joyce into opera. And I think that's really one of the reasons, I mean, his great hero was James Joyce. And when I read English, you know, the short of Finnegan's Wake, uh, Here Comes Everybody, Burgess was a really good guide to James Joyce. And he saw the seriousness and the importance of, of, of Joyce. So I use the word stogged, a bottle half stogged. That came from, from Joyce, but it also Burgess picks it up and uses stogged as well. But, you know, uh, a bottle stogged with sand. It's a great word. Great. It sounds marvellous. Even if the word doesn't exist, it does now because it describes, you know, wet sand in a bottle. It's interesting that you mention that Burgess's uh, variety of, of media that he works in because you're, you're primarily known as a, a non-fiction writer uh, and, and, a, and a journalist, in fact, uh, as, as Burgess was. Um, how, how does Burgess's work influence that side of your writing? Well, it's really, how shall I put this? In the simplest form, any writing is trying to express something clearly and effectively. You know, what you're trying to do in any piece, really, is, is convey emotion, mood, sensation, whatever it might be. You know, a good reporter takes you there. Um, Burgess had, he had that, that ability, he had that ability to, to report, he could do, you know, very fast pieces for journals, for, for holiday magazines, for the Daily Mail, whatever, he'd write for anybody, he'd do his 1000 words a day, so he could report. And I think, I think what he, he tries to do, is also is to write clearly. I mean, to quote another writer, Steinbeck, not much light now, but he said, if you're not writing clearly, you're not thinking clearly. And of course, that is the point. You're trying to get thought across. 
I think Burgess the Critic is very good. I mean, I used to read his reviews in The Observer, and some of them are masterly. Uh, he's, I mean, he may be wrong-headed sometimes, but he's a very good critic because he's thinking clearly. He'd been a teacher himself. He taught at the grammar school. Uh, he was a good teacher, and a good teacher has to be clear. So, of course, the writing is very thick and dense, but it is clear what he's trying to do and what he's trying to get at. And I suppose, for me, in journalism, um, clarity is, is what you're after. Um, essentially, what you're also after is truth. Truth is not truthiness or post-truth, the truth, going for truth. And I think, um, yes, of course, Burgess makes things up, and Little Wilson and Big God, he's a mythoman in certain ways, but he, he, he knows the value of truth, and he's a truth seeker too. How does he influence me? I mean, I write, partly I was an, an English language teacher, and so I try to write clear sentences that aren't, um, uh, aren't ambiguous. This short story is, is really a young man's piece of work, as uh, um, Borges once said, all, all young writers are Baroque. And I think in, in a way it's true that one loved Joyce for the overwriting and some of the overwriting and the really rich writing of Burgess. As you get older, maybe you want less of that, and you want pungent clarity. But the fact that he loved language, he was a great language teacher. He taught you to, 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 to know your language, to use your language properly. And that's what any, any writer, any journalist must try and do. Excellent. And, and of course, Burgess is, is all over your most recent book, Defending the Rock, which is a, a history of Gibraltar. Uh, where Burgess was stationed during the war. Exactly. And I think it's quite an interesting, that chapter that, or that section on, on Burgess, it's one of the, the key reasons why I wanted to do the book um, was because you had various people going through there, but I really wanted to explore that aspect of uh, Burgess's life. A Vision of Battlements was not the first novel that he published, but it probably was the first novel that he tried to write. Um, and he had to get that experience down. And I think he was a, a, he's a fantastic witness to something in the, in, the, in the Second World War. So, yes, here are these men imprisoned on the rock. And here is Anthony Burgess, then John Wilson, John Burgess Wilson, a sergeant in the education corps teaching the <laughs> mutinous and illiterate, the British way and purpose, <laughs> how to read and write. And there are tremendous scenes in A Vision of Battlements, which are really quite true, I think, of the kind of drunkenness of, of men on the rock. And he describes it all very, very well. And I think one of the reasons why Burgess is really important is that he is the writer who describes the end of empire by living through it. The point about Gibraltar is that it's an outpost of empire. The rock is the kind of symbol of imperial naval power, if you like. We take Gibraltar, then we move on to Menorca and Malta and Cyprus and all the way through the Mediterranean. So the rock of Gibraltar was this naval symbol. So here he is trapped on the rock. And then later, of course, he goes out far east by, by ship, of course, 
out to Malaya and writes the, you know, the, the Malayan trilogy, which is an end of empire trilogy. He's a man not only, he's not doing it like the Singapore grip, like J.G. Farrell, really. He's actually living through it and seeing it and is able to describe it and then lives in exile and is looking at the change and decline of, of Britain. And he looks at it from a very interesting point of view because he's a Catholic, he's working class, he's outsider. He's not, you know, um, Oxbridge metropolitan elite. He's from Manchester and an exile and a Catholic. Um, and so he's got this, this view of Britain from the outside. He, I, mean, I think he did feel kind of resentful that he wasn't honoured enough. And he really should have won the Book of uh, Earthly Powers. For goodness sake, they shouldn't have. He didn't want to be humiliated at the dinner. And Golding goes on to win the Nobel Prize. He shouldn't have won for that book anyway. He should have got the Booker for Earthly Powers. But we loved him. I mean, he may not have been honoured, um, knighted and all that stuff, but his readers and those, those of us who are devoted to him, we love Burgess. And, of course, I, I haven't mentioned really here that, that I... I um, I actually wrote to Burgess. I sent him, I had written in my head when I was traveling in South America, I used to write imaginary letters to Burgess in my head. I never sent them, never even wrote them. But I had a sort of running conversation with him. Um, and when I wrote that story, I did actually send it to him, but it never arrived. And there was a kind of muddle. He did write back um, saying, no, I, I never got the story. But later, when I worked at the BBC, I met him several times and I interviewed him. And uh, I think a copy of the interview I've given, an edited copy to, to, the, to the Burgess archive. And I saw him at Bush House a couple of times. And I believe I saw him, I interviewed him around the time, maybe the same day. And I've got a feeling it was the same day that he, he got the diagnosis that he had lung cancer. And he was in a very gloomy mood there with Liana. But this man, this sort of extraordinary man, was a, was a hero to me, hero to us, hero to me, William Boyd, John Sessions, lovely John Sessions, who I worked with. He did Robert Louis Stevenson for me, uh, who was, he did the most marvellous impersonation of Anthony Burgess. I wish he was still alive. Um, so, uh, yes. My generation, we like Burgess. Excellent. Thank you, Nick, for, for taking the time to speak to us and, and to, to read your, your story on the podcast. Uh, Graham, a great pleasure. You have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. Nicholas Rankin's book, Defending the Rock, How Gibraltar Defeated Hitler, is published by Faber and is available now from wherever you buy your books. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.antonyburgess.org. <laughs>